Wretched Radio begins in three, two, one. We've had 35 resurrections of the dead. The closer they are to freshly dead, the easier they are to resurrect. So I see this giant angel and I asked him his name. It's a financial company and I realized this angel is here for our finances. And that's a true literal story, by the way. These people are charlatans and it's about time we draw a line in the sand and stop fraternizing with the wolves. It's time for Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Look what's made its way to Australia. Australians, oh, let us rejoice, for we are young and free. Well, some people would argue not so much anymore. This is Wretched Radio. It would appear, at least according to one Murray Campbell, that Australia is receiving an American import. It doesn't need to go through customs. It makes its way through social media and pulpits. Our export, our gift to Australia, appears to be Christian nationalism. That's right, Christian nationalism. It is a pejorative most of the time. Nevertheless, there are some who are actually embracing the title and claiming to be Christian nationalists. In fact, the number one political theology book on Amazon.com is called The Case for Christian Nationalism. It's growing. It would appear in some iteration or another because there's lots of iterations. American Reformer, they've just started the Cotton Mather Fellowship. You say, what's a Cotton Mather? Is that how you make clothing that's soft and comfortable and absorbing? No, Cotton Mather, we would call him probably a Puritan. He was a preacher, let's just call it, give or take, late 1600s to the seven, early 1700s in Boston. They've started a foundation. Why, you ask? Let me read it to you. One thing, he helps us see all this, the key societal sectors, their order of, of priority and interconnectivity, and the result of their erosion. The antidote, true religion and piety, frugality and charity, hierarchy and magnanimity, education, public spirit, order, and governance, all animated by a zeal for reformation joined with an ecumenical pan-Protestantism and a nationalist self-consciousness. These are the attitudes and emphases American Protestants must recover as they work for national renewal. Not sure that that's actually... Our job description, nevertheless, there are an increasing number of folks who are promoting, they might reject the label, but various forms of Christian nationalism. And it forces us, and this is a good forcing, by the way, to work through these issues because it was easy even a decade ago. All right, how's about pre-Barack Obama before he informed us that this was all about fundamentally transforming the nation? Prior to Barack Obama 2008, we could talk rather casually about the subject of church-state relations because the only skirmishes that were taking place 15, 20 years ago were whether or not pastors should be preaching about politics and influencing elections from the pulpit. That conversation has intensified by necessity because, let's admit it, the government, it ain't quite as cheery as it once was toward Christians. 
and people are responding. Furthermore, you see the cultural rotten decay of a post-Christian culture, and you say, this is horrible. This has to change. And so it is. There are a number of people who are responding by looking back at church history, mostly, and stating that it is time for us to proclaim that America is a Christian nation. Hence, Christian nationalism. Again, to say that everybody who's, who identifies as a Christian nationalist believes this or that, that's inappropriate. Furthermore, please note, you and I have a lot of good brothers and sisters who might lean in that direction. Is this a, is this a fault line? The answer is no, not necessarily, probably not, frankly. It's just a different way of looking at a secondary issue. But it does have some rather far-reaching implications, dare I say repercussions. Let me share with you some thoughts from Murray Campbell. Must be Scottish. Identifying Christian nationalism as nothing new. We've seen it in various points in history. And it's often been accompanied by long-term disappointment, bloodshed, and gospel compromise. He understands why people are angry, but frustration and concern with politicians and the political process is not a reason for reactionary theology and poor exegesis, which is basically his accusation against Christian nationalism. You are not using the Bible rightly, specifically the Old Testament. Quote, grabbing biblical, this is, this is going to sound perhaps a little bit mm, picky, perhaps, or like inside baseball, but I would encourage you to look for this and listen for this, because I see this happening a lot, that there are some really provocative reasons, even it seems on the surface like compelling reasons to believe that there should be a commingling of church and state, that there should be a Christian prince, that the ch church should actually, uh, to a degree, uh, come under the authority regarding ecclesiastical matters to the state. And the state should be listening a lot to the church. Now, wh whatever iteration of that people adhere to, the question is, how do they get there? How did we start discussing more of a European model? But I think the one that comes to mind the most easily for all of us is that in Great Britain, where you see the monarchy as the head of the church. That's what is being proposed in different forms in the United States and now apparently in Australia, Great Britain too. How do they get there? Quote from the skull. Grabbing biblical words may appear strong and compelling, but fusing Christological promises and categories with political identities is a bad technique. This is what happens when we grab Old Testament language, remove it from its context, and ignore how the Bible's own logic tells us that Old Testament promises are pointing to and fulfilled in Jesus, not in a nation. 
And this is an interesting comparison that he makes, whether it's prosperity teaching, what? Christian nationalism or even sexual ethics. Ignoring the Bible's big storyline leads to misusing words and categories, and that leads to all manner of problems. That is why this conversation is also eschatological, depending on what you believe is the role of the church in reforming society and culture to prepare for the return of Jesus Christ, or as John MacArthur says, we lose, be faithful, be prophetic, be evangelistic, but no, we lose until the king returns and conquers. Like its cousin, prosperity teaching, Christian nationalism has the bad habit of taking old covenant promises to Israel and misapplying them straight into modern-day political systems, as though America or Australia are the new Israel. They're not. For instance, 2 Corinthians seven fourteen. if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, what will God do? He'll heal their land. To whom does this, this promise belong? Now, I do believe hermeneutically, you could say that the nation that generally and majorly believes in the Lord, God blesses that. But is this promise specifically for us today? If we do this, then God does that. Well, that was addressed to Israel. The people of God in the new covenant aren't any given nation. The church is international. The fulfillment of God's promises to Israel no longer carry physical terrain and border and a nation's sovereign political and judicial system. Citizenship is about belonging to the church. Consider what Bob, the author of Hebrews, said. You're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God people and members of his household. A note from Murray Campbell. It's not that we're not involved in politics, that we don't speak prophetically like that young man in Watertown, Wisconsin just did at the city council meeting. But that doesn't mean that that is how God's redemptive plan is forwarded. Now, he uses it for that plan, but that is not how it is forwarded. It is the propagation of the gospel. Quote, Oof, this is harsh language. Christian nationalism is a scourge and it will serve no good for the future of God's kingdom. It ends up making the state into the church and the church into a political party and turning the gospel of grace into a weapon to beat down political opponents. Oofda. Please note, perhaps you have not felt the breathings of those who are promoting Christian nationalism in your church. But you will, and probably sooner than later. Hey, Jimmy, we have a resource to help with hermeneutics. It's the Read the Bible Better, no, the Bible Zone Bundle. Uh-huh, yes. It's so that you don't make the mistake of interpreting the Old Testament wrongly. It's available now at Wretched.org. How is that for a plug? No, that was okay. Was this is Wretched Radio. So there you are on your Googler machine trying to find a restaurant. What do you look for? Ratings and reviews. If it gets lots of stars, positive reviews, chances are pretty good you're going to go there. Question, would you be inclined to go to a restaurant that had a 98% approval rating and rave reviews? I suspect you would. MetaShare? 
Affordable Biblical Health Sharing has a 98% approval rating. 400,000 members strong sharing one another's health care bills, saving billions of dollars over the years, saving families on average $500 a month. And 98% of the members of MediShare give it a hearty thumbs up. I encourage you to call them and see if MediShare is right for you and your family. 1-844-34-BIBLE. 1-844-34-BIBLE for MediShare. Are you tired of the endless scrolling and mindless internet browsing? Well, you can absolutely break free from the digital realm and enter the Bible Zone. This month, we invite you to unlock the power of the scriptures with our exclusive Bible Zone bundle. With the Bible Zone bundle, not only will you learn to read your Bible better, but you'll also desire to read it more. This $100 value is available all month long for only $39.99. Buckle up and get ready to enter the Bible Zone by picking up the Bible Zone bundle, including Herman Who, It's Not Greek to Me, Drive-By Theology, Jesus Unmasked, plus all four study guides to go along with the resources, all for $39.99, but only during the month of August. Visit wretched.org slash Bible Zone right now to place your order, but hurry up before time runs out. So, you're not convinced of the importance of training men to rightly divide the word of truth and fill pulpits internationally? Fine. Then we'll let Paul Washer convince you. It is so important, not just important, it's absolutely essential to have a trained expositor of the scripture in every church. When we read through the book of Acts, we can see that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, advances as the word of God advances. Would you please consider joining the Master's Academy International in filling empty pulpits with men who can exposit the scriptures and advance the kingdom of God it's a magnificent ministry with a generational impact. Please learn more about supporting TMAI at wretched.org slash pastor. Wretched.org slash pastor for the Masters Academy International. Know your church fathers. Jerome was a 4th century Christian theologian and one of the original four doctors of the church. His most important work was the Latin Vulgate, a translation of the scriptures from Hebrew and Greek into Latin, the vernacular of his day. The Vulgate remained the preeminent translation of the Bible for a millennium. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. What is going on? In Watertown. Yes, I did. <laughs> this is Wretched Radio. Perhaps you've seen the video. It's gone viral. A young man, 19 years old, reading the Bible outside of an all-ages drag queen dance party in story time hour. <laughs> oh, wow. In the future, will anybody look back and go, what were they thinking? I sure hope so. <laughs> this young man reading the Bible. I think he was in Galatians, if I'm not mistaken. He was not reading Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians 6. Instead, he was simply reading the Bible. And what happened? They ripped the microphone out of his hands 
and walked him away in handcuffs. Of course, I'm talking about the police in Watertown, Wisconsin. Now, just, does it sound any more Americana than that? And yet, this young man, outside of what was happening in a public park where children were encouraged to offer dollars to the drag performers, if you know what I'm saying. Now, Jimmy, I, that is just horrible for two reasons. Number one, because it's horrible. Would you like to know the second reason? What's the second reason? Well, $1. Come on. Have they seen the economy? <laughs> At least a 5 or a 10 would be appropriate. <laughs> this is in Watertown, Wisconsin. He was arrested, fined almost $200. That was for sound amplification and another 500 for resisting arrest. I've seen the video. The kid didn't look like he was resisting arrest. He tried to engage them. Hey, there was somebody talking on the, the, the video recording. Do you have your amplification meter? How is he breaking the ordinance? Didn't matter. They took him away with his hands behind his back in cuffs. The young man then, not there long thereafter, he appeared at a little city council meeting in Watertown, Wisconsin. You go, son. Hey guys, I hope you're all doing good tonight. I just wanted to ask a simple question. I know, you know, a Nazi group showed up at the event Saturday and people were talking about that. And I just wanted for all of us to really think about this. What's wrong with Nazism? This young man <laughs> is a public speaker. Apparently, there was a group. Nobody knows the exact details. They showed up dressed as Nazi. Apparently, they stuck around for about 20 minutes. But what did the news report on? What did the governor have to issue a statement on? There were Nazis at drag story hour time. And so was this young man reading the Bible. Like, seriously, what's wrong with Nazism? Because imagine for a moment that there is no God above us, no hell below us, no heaven to live for, as John Lennon wanted to imagine. If we are truly the result of evolved stardust and our ancestors were fish and were the descendants of monkeys, then where do we find our value as human beings? What's wrong with Nazism? Unless if you understand that the God of scripture says that we are made in his image. And so to murder innocent people is a violation to God's commands. As a Christian, I can say that Nazis, what the Nazis did in Nazi Germany was completely horrific and that they should have been resisted. In fact, the, the number one people group that resisted the Nazis were Christians. Jimmy, I'm kind of wondering, is this young man going to get booted off of Facebook for talking about the Nazis? <laughs> well, I don't know. Because we sure did. Marcus Schrader, 19 years old. What is he doing at this particular government meeting? I think he's being prophetic. I think as a Christian, he's speaking light into darkness. And the, and the reason why, the reason why was because they had a worldview that says that people are made in God's image and that they have worth and value. That's why Nazism is wrong. But if we're going to reject the Christian worldview, then we can't hold on to the fruit that comes from the Christian worldview while denying the actual foundation. That's an excellent line. In other words, don't jump into my ideological car in order to drive my worldview off the cliff. Don't try to reap the fruit of Christianity without sowing it. 
Intolerance is an interesting word. Tolerance, intolerance, hatred, love, bigotry, things like that. Because really every culture has something that it's intolerant towards and something that it's tolerant of. I mean, there are things like murder and rape and, and you know, stealing and, and just crimes that we are intolerant towards as a society. And so every society has something that's intolerant towards. The question is just, what is our object of intolerance and what is our object of tolerance? When I showed up Saturday, all I did was read from scripture on the sidewalk. I read from the Bible, Galatians. And by the way, I wasn't reading Romans 1. I wasn't reading any passage that spoke against homosexuality or anything like that. I was reading a passage from the Bible about love. Imagine that. Arrested. In Watertown, Wisconsin. And I was arrested. No reason, not given any warning, not told anything about my amplification needed to be turning down. I was arrested and taken into custody simply for reading the Bible on the sidewalk. You see, as we become more and more tolerant of sexual immorality in our culture, we've become more and more intolerant towards Christian morality. Wow. And the more we become intolerant towards Christian morality the more we're going to see lawlessness in our streets. The first thing that fell is the people who profess faith in Jesus Christ. That is step number one, because remember, civic duty, responsibilities, values, morality, all flow downstream from the headwaters of faith. The more we become intolerant of Christian morality, the more we're going to see Nazis. The more we're going to see people who don't hold to a Christian worldview, who think that everybody is a result of animals, and therefore, if we are animals, then why can't we just act like animals? We were called a hate group. We were told that we don't want to understand the other side, and I just want to set the record straight. I am more than happy to have that conversation with the other side. I did speech and debate throughout high school, and one of the things that... <laughs> That's not a shock, is it? ...you're taught in debate is that you can't make an argument for your side until you're able to make the argument for the other side. I've sat down and had hours of discussions with LGBTQ activists. I completely understand the other side. I want to understand the other side. But drag queens twerking on kids in lingerie is unacceptable. And that's something that we have to notice as a culture. We can have our disagreements, but there comes a time when we have to understand that we are all going to stand before God one day. There it is. And we're going to have to give an account for what we have done with the children in our society, the innocent minds and the children who deserve to be protected. Thank you. Wow. Dude. I've got goosebumps. That was strong. Now, Please note, he did not go in as a Christian and just delivered some sort of screed against Drag Story Hour. He talked about God, a source of authority. From whence does morality come? This was a young man who warned them, God's going to judge you for how you treat the least of these among us. That's prophetic. And to that, I say, salute. Props to this young man. Props for reading the Bible publicly. He's behaving like a Christian, but that's different than Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism goes further. Now, there is some overlapping from what you just heard in Christian nationalism, which is why it's been an effective tool for Christian nationalists to say, well, you, wait a second, you just endorsed what that young kid did. That's all we're talking about here. Yes, amen. But Christian nationalists are talking about a lot more. Stephen McAlpine 
is currently writing a series of articles reviewing Stephen Wolf's The Case for Christian Nationalism. I don't know anything about the fellow. He's smart, and he's an interesting and rather entertaining writer. And he made a comparison that hadn't dawned on me. That happens a lot. Christian nationalism, which seeks to have government enforce, in some way, shape, or form, Christian values, biblical ideologies. In some way, shape, or form, the government becomes an instrument under the supremacy of Jesus Christ, that he is sovereign over all. Therefore, government needs to run based on biblical principles is akin to liberals at the opposite extreme who desire to use the government to bring their utopia into creation. They want the government to go about the business of redistributing wealth, They want the government to make sure that money is taken from you to be given to somebody else, take care of global warming, make sure that everybody is equal and has equal outcomes, which is different than opportunities. In other words, using the government to impose, I think that word is okay, impose one's values, it's an instrument and ideology that's being used on both sides of the aisle. If you have not yet thought through Christian nationalism, church-state relations, I encourage you, let's do it lovingly, but really based on the amount of Christian nationalistic efforts I'm seeing, we really should do it like now. This is Wretched Radio. And it's now time for a Wretched News Break here on Wretched Radio. I'm Jimmy Hicks. And our first story is a trivia question. Can you spot the two ways that this story is not about a real pastor? Let's see if you can. Reverend Rebecca Todd Peters, a Presbyterian pastor, has defended her choice to undergo two abortions. That's right. She said she felt God's presence during the procedures and she believes her actions were not sinful. Why weren't they sinful? Well, because Reverend Peters says the Bible is silent on the topic of abortion. She also denies the humanity of unborn babies. And so can you tell us why this story is not about a real pastor? Or do you need more Blue's Clues? Yeah, I didn't think so. Okay, so let's talk about freedom, or lack thereof. An Alabama public library canceled an event recently featuring our good friend Kirk Cameron and Brave Books. The event, sponsored by Brave Books, aimed to champion free speech. Of course, a cause we can all stand behind. The library cited security and capacity concerns for the pullout, but the ever-vigilant First Liberty Institute says, no, 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 this smells a little bit like a constitutional rights violation. They issued a gentle nudge in the form of a letter suggesting the library reconsider their cancellation. And if they don't, legal paperwork going to be on the way. Now on to the land of Lincoln, where a federal judge put a pen in an Illinois law that would have allowed an attorney general to investigate crisis pregnancy centers for alleged deceptive practices. Critics say that they were worried it might target centers mentioning the potential risks between abortion and health issues like breast cancer. And the judge reminded Illinois that, hey, 
the First Amendment is still a thing. You know, look, the, the laws about abortion have gone the way they've gone in this country, but I'll say this, if history's shown us one thing, it's that when you try to silence those who value life, that typically doesn't end well for the silencers. Well, over on the vaccine front, no, no, not that kind, the childhood kind. A federal appeals court has given a nod to a Connecticut law which ditches religious exemptions. Despite massive public opposition, Connecticut's Attorney General stands by the law, praising it as vital for public health. Whether the Supreme Court will eventually weigh in on this remains to be seen or written, but I've never understood. If you've got a majority public opposition to a law, why pass the law? That seems a little bit communist to me. And this has been today's Wretched News Break. More Wretched Radio is straight ahead. I'm Jimmy Hicks. Important dates in Christian history. 1611. The authorized or King James translation of the Bible in the English language is published. Fifty-four scholars worked for four years on the project. The King James Version became the Bible of choice in the English-speaking world for over 400 years. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. I was being sarcastic, which is another big word you'll learn in school. What's the word on the street? This is Wretched Radio, the word on the street. New. That's right. The word is new and why you and I do well to be very cautious when somebody introduces a new twist on what we've understood to be true as Christians for the last 2,000 years. This is not to suggest that a pastor can't actually observe something new in a text. Most likely others have seen it. We just don't have it recorded. But he can come up with an observation that's really fresh. But that's different than introducing a new theology, a new way of understanding the Christian faith. And so it is with the issue of universalism. It is not an old concept. It is relatively new. From Eternal Perspectives Ministries, I think he just reposted an article from Michael McClyman. I hope I said that right, Michael. Because the idea of universalism is really attractive in our postmodern culture. It's not a massive movement, but it is afoot. And it has appeal to a society that says, whoa, 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 there's no way that God would send anybody to hell. How could he possibly be loving and still do something like that? And the simple answer, of course, is it's because he is loving. He just happens to love justice and righteousness and holiness. Nevertheless, it has its appeals to a postmodern world. Twelve questions for you if you're considering universalism. I love this. This just shows why we really have been standing firm on so many doctrines for so long. This is an excellent treatise, really simple to boot, and I like that. The intertwining of the Bible, all of the, all of the teachings about the exclusive faith that one must possess in the Lord Jesus Christ. That that was his message. If you are not persuaded that's what Jesus was teaching, please reread the Gospel of John. Got to tell you, each one of the Gospels has a particular appeal. 
the Gospel of John, which I happen to be reading through right now, it is Jesus. He is being very didactic in his debates. Yep, you're seeing miracles. Nevertheless, so much teaching about equality with the Father, the I am statements, the miracles that supported his claims of deity. Just listen to a sermon by Milton Vincent on John chapter 12, the fallout from the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. If you recall in chapter 11, I think, or the end of chapter 10, hey, uh, Lord, don't be going near Jerusalem because if you do, they, they just tried to kill you. And that would be going into the Kenny Loggins zone. So don't do it. What did Jesus do? He lingered, but then he marched to go visit his friends, Mary and Martha, whose brother Lazarus had died. By the time he arrived, it had been four days. He was stinking in the grave. We are talking about a human body decomposing, and yet Jesus, performing perhaps his most stunning miracle, raised him from the dead by speaking him back to life. And it was that particular miracle that was the hinge. Jesus, if you recall, when you read about Jesus, really running around Israel, because his time had not yet come. You even read about Jesus in Jerusalem, even after the resurrection of Lazarus. And they wanted to kill him, but they couldn't because it wasn't his time. Nevertheless, it was the death of Lazarus that most commentators believe was the mechanism that really turned the corner and started a chain of events that led to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And yet, he went anyway. Why? Because he loved Lazarus, and he loved you. His love compelled him to go to the cross to die for us while we were yet sinning. The Gospel of John loaded with rich theology and as you read it you start to you start to realize okay this is why we believe in the trinitarian god this is why we believe that jesus is fully god fully man this is why we have clung to this for so long and the exclusivity of jesus is one of those doctrines 12 questions if you're thinking about becoming a universalist which you shouldn't one what do we do with jesus words regarding hell outer darkness the fire that is not quenched, the worm that does not die. What, what, was, what was he describing, if not a place where people whose sins aren't forgiven go? Two, if hell is a temporary state, but heaven is a forever state, then why are they both called eternal? It's in Matthew 25. Jesus uses the same Greek word, Iones, uh, ages, to describe how long heaven lasts, and how long hell goes on. And they are parallels to each other. Just as heaven is eternal, so is hell. What was he talking about? If, if this is not an actual place where some people go, universalists would say, nobody goes there. Number three, what about the two ways theme in the Old and New Testament? This is cool. Genesis 2, Adam is given a choice between life with God or death in defiance to God. Psalm 1, you've got the righteous and the wicked compared and contrasted. Isaiah 1, 
If you're willing and obedient, good things. But if you refuse and rebel, you'll be eaten by the sword. The whole thrust of the Old and New Testament is that there's good, there is evil. Number four, why did Jesus need to die? Hmm? What was the point? If everybody's just going to go, why did he go through what he endured? A uni- if a universalist admits that God's righteous opposition to sin required something that awful, then it makes sense to say that sinners not justified by Jesus' death deserve hell, or at least something like it. Number five, how should we interpret the end-time teachings of Revelation? (laughs) You know, all that talk about a lake of fire. Number six, doesn't the New Testament show that salvation is connected to faith? Look up the word faith. You want to find a new way to read your Bible? Pick a word any word. Pick faith. Pistos in your concordance. To believe. It appears over 500 times in the New Testament. It's a big deal. The universalist says that either people in the present life who don't want to be believers really are believers. They just don't know it, I guess. Or people who depart this life in unbelief get a further opportunity to become believers after death. Although it's appointed unto man once to die, then judgment squashes that. Or they would say salvation isn't tied to faith. Problem is, you got 500 times the Bible says it is. Seven, what's the historic teaching on final salvation in the major branches of Christendom? In other words, you look throughout history, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, with the exception of the Universalist Church in the United States, which began in the 1800s, which means in the scope of church history, they're the new kids on the block. Let's hope that their career ends the same way. Or are they out touring, the new kids on the block? <laughs> I think so, maybe. I don't Sorry about that. Well, well, eventually we'll end what I'm trying to say. The church bears witness. Now, I'm not saying that we all have agreement on the essentials. I'm just saying, furthermore, Origen, early church father, this is why we have to be careful reading the church fathers, condemned at the Second Council of Constantinople in 553. Why? He was a universalist. And the early church recognized, no. Furthermore, you've got Augustine or Augustine, if you're from Florida, Chrysostom, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, Bellarmine, Pascal, Owen, Edwards, etc. Were they all mistaken for so long? Number eight, what would happen if Christian congregations or denominations embraced universalism? <laughs> you would divide, deny everything else. It would be a domino that ended up denying the existence of God, most likely. Number nine, What's the final destiny of Satan and the demons? That's right. An eternity in a lake of fire. Why Why do they have to go? Hmm? Number 10, can sinful people make atonement or satisfaction for their own sins through their own sufferings? The answer is no. 11, is it plausible to believe there's a second chance of salvation after death? No. There's a limited time. Wise virgins, foolish virgins. Now is the time of salvation. Somebody sent me a clip to ID at wretched.org. He was preaching on Jonah. This was a great, non-altar call, altar call, call to salvation. You don't know if you have 40 days or 40 seconds. Be like the Ninevites. Repent now. 
And that goes for you if you're a universalist or you're contemplating universalism. Please repent like the Ninevites now because you do not want to hear those fateful words, depart from me, worker of iniquity, I never knew you. This is Wretched Radio. Sorry to ask you to do some arithmetic, but this is some math that will encourage you and make you very, very happy. This is one testimony of a mother who chose life because she saw her own baby, courtesy of an ultrasound from Preborn. I was terrified. I really didn't know what to do. The first time I saw the ultrasound, I was just amazed. I was like, oh my gosh, is that my baby? And I, like, I heard her heartbeat and I, I just I just fell in love. If I could care about my daughter this much, if I could love my daughter this much, how much does God love me? Now take that one testimony and multiply it by 54,253 because that is the number of babies that were saved last year because of ultrasounds at pre-born centers. Would you please help us grow that number by providing as many ultrasounds as possible at preborn.org slash wretched, preborn.org slash wretched. Hey, thanks for listening to Wretched Radio today. And I'm here to talk to those of you who have supported us by purchasing resources from our store at wretched.org. Have you ever considered becoming an ongoing monthly gospel partner? Now, we love you and we are grateful for your support when you purchase and listen to our resources, but we would seriously love for you to join us as a gospel partner. Because here's the thing, we exist, as you know, to reach millions of lost souls all over the world with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we do it through culturally compelling and biblical sound gospel-centered productions. That's a mouthful, but it's true, and we need your help to make it happen. We're not asking for you to just throw your money at us. We're not asking for that at all. What we're doing is inviting you to partner with us. So would you prayerfully consider joining us in becoming an ongoing monthly Wretched Gospel partner? Just visit wretched.org slash donate or text the word Wretched to the number 44321. Wretched. Amazing grace. Amazing gospel. Ah, some good news. Two encouragements from the Tomorrow Clubs. They have hundreds of weekly kids meeting clubs in Eastern Europe, but now they've expanded to Africa and the kids are swarming the Tomorrow Clubs. They have never seen greater attendance than the hundreds of new clubs that they are opening up in Africa. That should encourage all of us. The gospel is going forth and reaching kids in unreached places. Encouragement number two, would you like to become a Tomorrow Clubs ministry partner? Your support will help the Tomorrow Clubs open up even more Tomorrow Clubs and reach even more kids with the gospel. Please consider becoming a ministry partner at tomorrowclubs.org slash wretched. Tomorrowclubs.org slash wretched. Books of the Bible. Luke was a physician and companion of Paul, who wrote an orderly account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He meticulously details names, places, and events. Luke shows great concern for people of every class, especially overlooked or undesirable people. We are all from various places and classes, but Jesus Christ is the Savior for all mankind. 
This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. You can thank Jimmy for this. This is Wretched Radio. <laughs> They're not so new, kids. They're selling out stadiums. <laughs> Jimmy, you having a flashback? This was your idea. I was going to move on, and you said, hey, if you're going to talk about the new kids on the block, then you could talk about aging gracefully. I don't know where you came up with that idea. Uh, well, <laughs> I had some help. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is like a flash. I'm pretty sure it was New Kids on the Block when they first came out. How many years ago? A it's got to be 30 some years yes. ago, right? Uh-huh, yeah. So I'm working at a local radio station doing sidekick shenanigans stuff for the morning show. Was asked if I'd go to the New Kids on I think it was New Kids or NSYNC, one of them. Does it matter? Really? Can anybody tell the difference between a new kid and an NSYNC song? Really? And so they said, go watch the concert, write jokes, and then you'll deliver them tomorrow morning on the program. (laughs) Here's two free tickets. Well, what am I going to do with two free tickets? Told a buddy of mine and he went, I'll go. So we two clearly older than all of the 12 year old girls who were there (laughs) and perhaps the only two boys. That were there. And during one of the slight lulls, because the place was, it was just pandemonium. My buddy, who I thought was a friend, in a high-pitched voice, screams, we love you. I think it was like Donnie. Was he one of the new kids? <laughs> He's actually probably the most successful out of Okay. We love you, Donnie. <laughs> I'm telling you, time stood still. Are y'all still friends? 18,000 teenagers. All looked in our direction. <laughs> it's not exactly like, could you just sing the whole thing? <laughs> it was a bad night, needless to say. But as long as Jimmy has delivered us a segue, let's talk. About men, uh, shall we? Tim Chalice, I think he's French. He writes out of Canada. So there's a pretty good chance he is. Tim Chalice, things for Christian men to think about. Number one, it's time to put behind you your teenage antics and shenanigans and stop gyrating on a stage as if you're still a heartthrob. I'm sorry. He said all of that. Uh, Well, (laughs) he knew they were going to be on tour when he wrote this. Back in October, the society around you wants you to believe that men cannot have friendships with other men that are significant and meaningful and emotionally intimate, but do not involve intimacy or any desire for it. Society casts doubt on Jonathan and David and on Frodo and Sam and everyone in between, as if love between men cannot be utterly true and also utterly pure. Don't buy the lie. The reason that that narrative it actually exists is because of the broad acceptance of homosexuality and the PDAs, the public displays of affection. When you see two men holding hands, kissing, which is happening increasingly, you automatically know, well, those are two gay men. So if you see two men who are straight 
having any sort of close friendship, the assumption automatically is they're gay. That is the world's narrative. Don't listen to it. Friendships with other men are precious and good and bring glory to God. You'll be a better man for bearing your heart before a friend and allowing him to really know you as you are. Like the night of the new kids, I found out my friend loved Donnie. He was willing to share that with me and 18,000 children. You'll be a better husband and father and church member. So pursue friendships and relational intimacy with other men. You'll be glad you did. That is, Greg Gifford is what we, uh, he was... Uh, uh, oh, he was ta he's talking. Oh, he's talking about dating mm -hmm. on the yes. Transform podcast. And he I don't I don't I think he, he admitted, unlike some former Southern Baptist Convention presidents, that he actually lifted it from somebody else describing the levels of friendship. You've got yourself somebody who's you know, kind of like stranger friend. You just, hey, how you doing? Nice to see you. Lovely day. How's about them Vikings? And then off you go. That's about it. That's a low level of relationship. Then you have an acquaintance, probably somebody that you work with. You wouldn't be, you don't do friend things outside of the office, but you're friendly inside of the office. That's an acquaintance. Then you've got a friend. It's somebody that you actually spend time voluntarily doing things with. And then you have besties. And and he used it. He said he had a friend from Great Britain. Apparently, best friend in Great Britain is bosom buddies, which I think works if you happen to be buds with Tom Hanks. Otherwise, in the states, we kind of avoid that term. Okay, I haven't heard back from Greg yet because I I listened to the podcast dutifully and joyfully on Saturday morning. Mm -hmm. So I I listened to him say that he got a little queasy when his buddy said. We're bosom buddies, Greg, because that's just not the way we talk. My text. Thanks, Todd, for reading a text. Just listen to today's podcast, and I have a very vulnerable question for you, so don't mock me. Am I to presume you and I are bosom buddies? <laughs> and then I immediately texted. That was way more awkward to type than I thought. Not sure it was worth the joke. I feel icky inside. Help me. Don't buy the narrative that two men can't be dear friends. Okay, not bosom buddies, but they can be dear friends. What I'm trying to say here from Tim Challies, no relationship in the world is as precious and pure as the relationship between a father and his daughter. So treat your daughter as the precious princess she is. By the way, sorry for this observation. As a pedophilia increasingly becomes accepted, and endorsed and probably even codified by our government that it's normative behavior. It's just another sexual expression. And you see that in public, which you will. Then when you're affectionate with your daughter in public, guess what you're going to be accused of? B-I-N-G-O. Be kind to your daughter and patient and so very gentle. You will need to address her sin indeed, and you will need to chastise or discipline her at times. That is bound up in your fatherhood, and she'll ultimately respect you for it, but that must always be done with great love and tenderness. Instead of trying to force her allegiance, woo her to yourself and win her heart. Nothing will win her heart more than patiently listening to her and consistently drawing her out. It takes time. How was your day? Fine. Slam.
the bedroom door. That's not a conversation. You're going to have to work for it. Picture yourself dancing with her at her wedding. Can we not do that? Stephen Curtis Chapman foisted that on us with his little Cinderella song. Picture the way she looks at you at that moment and then consider what will it take to be that father to that daughter? What will it take to have your daughter regard you in that way? Work backward from there. That's pretty good advice coming from Tim Challies. Your wife is God's daughter. And in much the same way, you may someday entrust your daughter to a man. God has entrusted his daughter to you, to your care and protection. And it should evoke gratitude in your heart. Jimmy, do you remember we had a convert, like lengthy conversation about the issue of a, in this instance, it was a wife who gained a lot of weight. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Candace Owens just tackled that. Okay. Oh, had as much tenderness as a razor blade. That's what that was all about. Oof. Gentlemen, be gentle, men. Be tender all the time. Doesn't mean you're sissified. It, it means that you are indeed aware of a softer sex. And that includes your wife, capable and competent as she is. Love her. Esteem her. Be grateful for her. Chalice, this should also provoke serious self-examination to consider if you're treating your wife in the way God would wish for his daughter to be treated. Does your wife know you love her? like her, accept her? Does she know that you truly treasure her? Does she know you'll protect her even from her own sin? Do you thank God for providing so precious a gift? Finally, Chalice writes, it is a great tribute to a man when his family knows him for his commitment to the Bible, to prayer, and to the local church. Gifts and vacations and inheritances, all well and good, But no better legacy you can leave to your children than being a man who truly loves the Lord and has lived for his glory. This legacy is inextricably bound to a long dedication to scripture, to prayer, and a consistent commitment to the local church. Be known for these. If you're young and you are not married and you're thinking, None of this applies to me. At least not yet. I don't have to deal with it. Yes, you do. You need to start acting like a husband now. You need to start behaving like a father now. Don't get good at your role once you're thrust out into the stage. Go to dress rehearsals today. And until tomorrow, go serve your kingdom.